Oh, you guys like to gab. It's a gift. Well, today we come to the last message in our short series on this two-chapter book in the Old Testament called Haggai. Haggai has been, for me at least, and I hope for you, a real gift from God. Uh, it's also a gift from God, although you might not realize it, that I've actually been able to get through an entire book of the Bible in just four messages. Uh, I don't think I have ever done that before. When we did Ephesians, that was six chapters, and that took me three and a half years. So we're doing pretty well. Um, I don't know if you've realized it yet or not, but the context of Haggai is very relevant to our day. Because the people that we're dealing with in the book of Haggai are a lot like us. These were people who wanted to serve God. They didn't set out to be rebels. They weren't like going their own way. They came back to their home area with the intent of building God's house. But then life happens. Stuff that you didn't expect comes down the pike. And you get caught in the trap of the weariness and the erosion of everyday life. And pretty soon, you just begin to lose all of that energy, all of that enthusiasm, so that in chapter 1, God comes and he challenges them to shift their priorities and to shift their perspective. Now, they had started out well with all kinds of energy, all kinds of excitement. And I've watched the same progression in church, even in this church, over the years. People come to church, and they love the worship, they love what's going on, they love the friendship, they love the camaraderie, they love the preaching, they love the fact that they have encountered God. And they're excited about it. But then all it takes is one hard thing to happen. One disappointment, and pretty soon all of that excitement just leeches out of them. Um, and when that happens, you begin to put God's agenda second to your agenda. It could be that it used to be you would never miss church, but then something happens. And pretty soon, well, you know, I don't like to miss church, but... I've got a chance to get a little bit of extra overtime. What exactly are you going to do with that money from the overtime? Oh yeah, your own agenda. Because ultimately, when you take God out of first place, you put something else in. Because, and hear this, there is always, always, always one ultimate thing in your life. Maybe it's your stuff. Maybe you just like toys. Maybe it's your money. Probably more than likely, it's your marriage or your family. Often hear people talk about how, no, I've got to give myself to my family. But if you boil it all down, and please hear me, if you boil it all down, at heart, what you have done is you have taken Jesus off the throne and you have put yourself on the throne. You have said, I want things my way, in my time. I want what I want. And I don't have, I, I'm not going to wait for God. I don't care about God's agenda. I have my wants and my desires. 
And if God's agenda doesn't mesh with my agenda, I'm sorry, God, you have been displaced on the throne of my life. I've had people, I've had people in this church, I can think of one specifically right now as it comes to my mind. I've had people in this church sit right here, hands raised, loving God, worshiping God, but a loved one got sick and they prayed for healing. And that loved one didn't get well. In fact, in that case that I'm thinking of, the loved one actually died. And their statement, maybe not in so many words, but their statement was basically this. I choose not to, sh- choose not to serve a God who is so cruel. W- what do you mean cruel? Oh yeah, God didn't do what you wanted God to do. And that's what we're dealing with in this book of Haggai that is so relevant to us today. God failed me. Five times throughout this book, God says the words through Haggai, consider your ways. Assess, take stock of your life. You're putting your wants and your desires ahead of God's agenda. Is it working really well for you? When you're all done with your life, are you going to be the better for it? God didn't just come and challenge them in chapter 1. He actually gave them a promise. He said that if you will make me number one in your life, if you will serve me, I will bless you. And in an amazing turnaround, right in chapter 1, in an amazing turnaround, the people actually did decide to make God first in everything. They went up to the mountain and they cut down timbers and they began to build God's house. But then in chapter 2, they hadn't been building very long. And they were getting weary. They were getting tired. And they began to face resistance and opposition from within and without. People began to criticize it. They began to get offended by things. The pastor preached too long last Sunday. He was a little bit too, I don't like it when he gets upset and he shouts. Or, you know, I came in the doors of the church and they didn't even greet me. I sat through that whole service and not one person said hi to me. They got offended. They got upset. They got hurt. And God began to address not their disinterest now. He began to address their discouragement because they began to ask the same kind of questions that you and I ask. Is this God thing real? I thought it was going to be better than this. I thought once I came to God, all my problems would evaporate. Is God even real? Or did I make him up one night as I was laying in bed, just wishing that I could have a Superman who could come and save me? Is God like my Superman replacement? And they began to ask those kinds of hard questions. Is his promise true? If God is real, does he really do what he says he'll do? Because I'm not seeing any results here. And God began to address their discouragement in their marriages, in their families, in their finances, in the workplace. And God comes and he not only doubles down on his promise, but he adds to it. He says, I promise you, I will be with you and I will give you peace and I will cause glory to rest upon you. I finished last week with this question and I ask it to you again. Is God enough for you? Is it enough that no matter what else happens in your life, you get God? Is that enough? Because that's his promise. 
I will be with you. Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Is that enough for you? When things don't work out well, are you tempted to pull back and quit? I'm not going to go to that church anymore. I thought they were a friendly church, but I guess they're not all that friendly. And is this God thing? Well, I'll see. I'll see. Is God enough for you? The message of Haggai is very simple. Are you willing to put God's agenda, God's ways, God's timing, are you willing to put God's will first in your life? But that raises the question I want us to grapple with as we end today. Uh, The question is simply this. What does putting God first in everything look like in Warsaw, New York? What does putting God first in your life look like for you? What would it look like if you actually made the decision to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, a true disciple? My question to you is very simply this. If I could word it in my kinds of words, are you all in or not? I'm not talking about, have you said the sinner's prayer and asked God to forgive you your sins? I'm talking about, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because he didn't say, go and make converts everywhere you go. He said, go and make disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you all in, no matter what? Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. The real danger is, that when we talk about this kind of things, we tend to start comparing ourselves. We make comparisons. We first start with the worldly people. You know, the people who we know. I mean, they're just, come on. Let's just call them what they are. They're all out sinners. They're heathens. We compare ourselves with them, and we're we're talking about people like uh, Richard Dawkins, probably one of the world's most famous atheists who love loves to combat Christians and to defeat them with his moral arguments. Or back in our day, back in my day, it would have been somebody like Anton LaVey who wrote the Satanic Bible. I mean, those are worldly people. And we know we're better than them, so I guess I'm a pretty good disciple of Jesus compared to them. Or maybe you don't compare yourself with them. Maybe you compare yourselves with the political people around you. I mean, think about what's been going on just in this last year or so. The impeachment process. Am I better than... Let me just ask you this. Are you a God-fearing, card-carrying Republican? Because if you're not, you can't be a Christian. Or or, wait, no, no, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Are you a God-fearing, card-carrying Democrat? Because if you're not, you can't be a Christian. Have you made those kinds of people your comparison point? Thank God I'm not as bad as President Trump. Or, thank God I'm not like Nancy Pelosi or Adam Schiff. Who are you comparing yourself to? And I come out smelling like a rose. And I feel pretty good about my faith. Or maybe you compare yourself with those Nominal Christians. You know what I mean. I mean, they, they, they go to church once in a while. They call themselves a Christian, but come on, you know. They're just going through the motions. They go to a traditional church where 
I mean, there's no life there. There's no... And you compare yourself with them and you come out feeling pretty good about yourself because I'm on fire. I come to this church. I come to family-like church. We're a Holy Ghost church. We raise our hands and we dance. I'm not like those people. Or we compare ourselves with some of the people sitting around us right today. Thank God I'm not like I mean, come on, I'm better than. I mean, I pay all my own bills, I work hard, I make a living, I don't owe anybody anything, I come to church pretty much every Sunday. Well, as long as a friend doesn't give me bills tickets, or my kids don't have dance class, or football, or any other life-impacting event for our children, something that's really going to change their life around, then I'm in church and um, I don't lie. Well, not big ones, I mean. I mean, nothing major. And I mean, I might look, but I don't touch. So, I mean, I'm better than all you sinners. But here's the problem with all of that. God never calls you to compare yourself with them or them or them or them. He only calls you to let His image be seen and reflected in you. To allow His Spirit to make you more and more and more like Jesus Christ. See, the problem is that nowadays, the people that many people would label as being overboard or extreme or even a fanatic, do you know what they were called in the New Testament? They were called Christians. People who went all in for Jesus Christ, so much so that they turned the world upside down. My question to you today is very simply, are we just fooling ourselves? Or are we truly followers, disciples, Christians? I read an article recently about some basketball players, and I know some of you don't care about basketball, but follow this a little bit. These were people that were like the stars in college that actually got recruited and named to actually pro teams. But most of them ended up either sitting the bench or at best became a part of the practice squad for the really good players. People that the real pros could beat up on. And this whole article was about these wannabes who made it to the pros but weren't really good enough to play them. You know who I mean. The people who at the end of the game when it's a blowout, the coach lets on the floor. And when you watch them, you think, how in the world did they ever make the pros? They're so awkward and it's like they're stumbling around and they miss passes and all the other pros who had been playing, who got the lead for them, got the cushion, are sitting on the bench mocking and laughing at them. And the whole article was about them. But here's what the article did, which I thought was really unique. It was cool. The article took those same players, took a group of them who were never quite good enough to actually play on the floor, but had made it to the pros, but sat the bench or just were a part of the practice squad, took those pros, and they put them on the court against, at that time, the best college players that were available. 
you know what happened? Those wannabes that didn't quite make it good enough ran circles around the college players. Against them, they looked great. And the article finishes with this idea that it really comes down to your perspective. So when you think about comparing yourself, who are you comparing yourself to? So like if I'm, Connie, can you come here for a minute? Just for a minute. If I'm comparing myself, do I want to be in the NBA? Well, if I stand next to Connie, how tall are you? Four, seven. Four, all four foot seven of Connie. I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, you're kind of tall. Yeah. So compared to Connie, I'm feeling good. You can, you can go back. Okay, all four foot seven of you. But if I come, can, can you stand up for a second here, Tim? If I compare myself to Tim, <laughs> I don't know. Or, thank you, Tim. There, how, how do you explain it? There is this guy who plays uh, on the, I think it's the Boston Celtics, is that right? Let me check to make sure. Yeah, Boston Celtics. His name is Taco Fall. Any of you ever heard of Taco Fall? Here, here. John, come here for a minute, would you? Quick. I'm going to compare myself. John, could you just stand up there? This is Taco Fall. Six foot, or, or oh, I'm sorry, seven foot eight. Seven foot eight. I mean, they had a picture. I don't know if you have it. Did you, have the, did you get that? You didn't get the picture. They had a picture of Taco Fall standing next to an NBA professional player who was himself tall, taller than me. And he's got his hand on his shoulder leaning on him like that. That's Taco Fall. Thanks, John. I mean, who are you comparing yourself to? So you call yourself a Christian because you come to church once in a while. Because you said the sinner's prayer one time when you were a kid. The question is, are you living for Jesus every day? The point is this. In the USA, if you attend church once or twice a month, including weddings and funerals, you are rated as being a strong, vibrant Christian. It's true. You can Google it yourself. Find out all the stats. I, I narrowed down. I took the best stats. I didn't want to get the worst picture. I mean, they were far worse. I picked the better one. One to two times a month, including, it put in there, including weddings and funerals. Two-thirds of the people who call themselves millennial Christians. Now, these are people who were born between 1981 and 1996. How many of you were born between 81 and 96? Can I see your hands? Okay. These were the group of people that they actually were measuring that called themselves millennial Christians. Millennial Christians said they felt they were good, strong Christians because they went to church a few times that year. That's what we're comparing ourselves with. And when you compare it with giving, it gets even better. If you're sitting here today and you're giving 5% of your net to the work of the Lord, 
you are doubling what the average giving in the U.S. is. Across all realms of what they call Christendom. The average Christian in the United States gives 2.5%. So if you're giving 5% of your net income, you're doing really well. And if you get really, really radical, and you actually give a tithe, and how much is a tithe, by the way? 10%. 10%. If you give a tithe of your income, we're going to name the building after you or something. You're like, you're out there. There's something wrong with you. How can you live on that? But that's the kinds of things we're comparing to. Compare that with this scripture from first century Christianity. Acts chapter 4. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, I confess that in our little corner of the world, of Warsaw, New York, Wyoming County, I am realizing more and more every day, every year, how self-centered and selfish I really am. When the board came to me not too long ago, and we're talking about our annual adult Christmas party, which is a big deal. I mean, we started that. They didn't have that before. We started that. First one I can remember us having, we actually had up on the hill at the uh, Wyoming, not the inn, but the one up on the hill. Hillside, Hillside thank you. Um, so I, I, I was the pastor who started it. So this is important to me that we get together and have a time to celebrate. And then they came and they said, what we're thinking of doing this year is having Tacos. Tacos. Did, did you hear me? Who in the world has tacos for Christmas? What is wrong with them? And I realized, in fact, if you were in that board meeting, you would be able to attest to the fact that I just smiled and said, that's fine, we don't care. I realized in that moment, I am so stinking selfish, it's unbelievable. Because the first thing that came to my mind was what I wanted. I want what I want. I want turkey, and I want it to be white meat, and I want it to be dry. Dry as dust, because that's how my mom made it, and that's how I like it. I want mashed potatoes, and you can forget the gravy. I want corn that you put on top of your mashed potatoes, because that's how it is. Tacos! When I read the New Testament, though, these people gave everything. They were willing to sacrifice even their own stuff for the sake of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, my question to you this morning is, are we here at Family Life Church really all that spiritual? 
Or is it just that we appear that way when we compare ourselves with others? How vibrant, how deep, how real is your faith? And your commitment to allow the image of God to be stamped upon you more and more every day. That's why it's so crucial that we talk to you at the beginning of the year about reading your Bible. Reading through your Bible. I I know, I tell people I read through the Bible and they're like, the Bible? You mean like the whole thing? Yeah, the whole thing. You're telling us, I've had people do it down above, you're telling us that you read through the whole Bible in one year? No. I read through the whole Bible by St. Patrick's Day. This Bible is what gives us our standard. Jesus in John 17 prays a prayer for us. And he says there, sanctify them by your truth. But then he adds this word, your word, O God, is truth. You want to know the truth about yourself? Let the word be your mirror. Don't look at somebody else and compare yourself. Let the word be it. Paul tells us in Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Not to other people that you're comparing yourself to. To God. And then he goes on, he says, that's just your reasonable act of worship. Your reasonable service. That's not like going above and beyond. That's like the baseline. All right, we didn't even get to Haggai yet. Turn to Haggai chapter 2, real quick. Haggai 2. We cannot allow the Word of God or the will of God and His claims upon our lives to be dumbed down for our convenience. Leave the Word where it is and say, God, I fall short. Bring me up. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month and the second year of Darius. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So again, to be clear, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we're about three and a half months into the thing now. Three and a half months have gone by. Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, if one carries holy meat, by holy meat he's talking about meat that was used in the sacrifice. They had a sacrificial system. If you carry that meat in your robe in your fold of your garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. The principle that Haggai is laying out is, While holiness cannot be transferred, unholiness or unrighteousness can. It's catchy. Verse 14. Then Haggai answered, So is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Here what Haggai is trying to convey to them by the word of the Lord is that the reason everything they're touching is going wrong is because they are wrong at core. 
They're unclean and everything they touch becomes unclean and unproductive. So that that seed that you're planting in the ground doesn't produce a harvest because you who were unclean, you had impure motives were touching that seed and putting it in the ground. And your uncleanness was being transferred to the seed. And here's his point. Masking your life of selfishness and sin with some good works, with looking good, isn't going to work with God. In other words, putting on a show, wearing a mask of righteousness so that people can look at you and ooh and ah over you doesn't impress God if there's not righteousness and holiness at the core of your heart. Your good will never outweigh your bad. Your spiritual activities can never cover over your evil ones. The amazing truth about the grace of God, though, is that God's not looking for you to look good. He's looking to make you good. To allow His goodness to be not only imputed, to put on the record books in your place, He's actually wanting to put it inside of you so that you become more and more like Jesus. And when God comes and he confronts our heart's mixed motives, the only appropriate response is repentance. Repent. And repentance isn't a, a, a sense of groveling before him in remorse, nor living a life of penance. Repentance is coming home to who God says you really are and what he wants to do in you. That's what repentance is, saying, God, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want your way inside of me. I want truth in the inner man. I've had people say to me things like, well, I know I live like the devil during the week, but on the weekends, I try to do a little bit better and I come to church. I mean, when I'm at work, come on, pastor, you, you don't know what it's like working with those guys. Their language is like horrible. And you fall into the trap of using God's name in vain just like that. You know, just, you know, you can't help yourself, really. So in other words, their uncleanness is greater than the holiness of God that he has put inside of you. That's what you're basically saying. Well, I figure, Pastor, if I come to church every Sunday this month, and I'll actually come to church, I'll come, I'll stand and I'll lift my hands, I'll sing loudly, and I'll give a big offering. Won't that make up for it? No, not a bit. God's not impressed with your act. He's impressed when the real you actually meets with the real him. That's what God wants, that kind of encounter. When it's no longer about me and saying, God, I don't want to live this way. I want you to live through me. And I know somebody here is going to say, Pastor, that, that, this is all Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. Jesus loves me now just the way I am. Does Jesus love you? Yes, he does. I, I believe that. I believe he loves you enough to not leave you the way you are. And by the way, Jesus also loves the whole world, but the whole world isn't saved. Isn't that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world. But they're not all saved, right? So the fact that you can say God loves you doesn't really prove much of anything. Unless the love of God is actually changing something inside of you. Jesus said, if you come to the altar and realize a brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift at the altar. First go and make it right, then offer your gift. In other words, if you're here on a Sunday morning and you know that your life is out of order, I'm not saying don't worship. I'm not saying don't raise your hands. What I'm saying is, God, in your heart, say, God, change me. I don't want to be a pretense. I don't want to go through an act where I look spiritual to the people around me, but I live like the devil at home. I want what is at home to be the same as what is here. I want to live for you every day of my life. I'm not talking about some kind of perfect performance or some kind of litmus test of perfection. Aren't you grateful for the grace of God that saves you? It's not your performance, it's His performance. It's always been that. So understand, this is real to me. I am more grateful than you could ever know that Jesus came and rescued me. But I don't want to stay the same. I want to change. I want to grow in Him. And lest you think this is only Old Testament, let me just read one, just one, there's many, but one New Testament reference. 1 Peter 3.7 Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, talking about their wives, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, don't you dare come in here after beating on your wife all week long, maybe not physically, but emotionally and with your words. Come in here and think you raising your hands impresses anybody. God says, no, let the heart reflect what is true, what is right. I know that I knew coming into this that preaching this particular sermon would be kind of like walking a knife's edge in a way. Because somebody's going to say, Pastor Chris, you're taking away grace and you're making about law. And that's not my heart at all. If you know me at all, you know there's probably no one, no one, none of you are as grateful as I am for God's salvation. Because I needed salvation so desperately. And the truth is you probably would say the same thing. Because of God's great grace to you. You needed it. So I'm not trying to reestablish the law. I'm merely trying to say, you can't lay claim to what I'm calling cheap grace. Where you live any old way you want in the name of God's love for you. And that's what Haggai's dealing with. It's not a matter of perfectionism. It's a matter of letting the grace of God change you. Grace is not just that God loves you. Grace is the power of God to change you from one level of glory to another. I believe every one of us are saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. I believe that. But I also believe that he said, those whom God has saved, he predestined to become conformed to his image. You should be looking more and more like Jesus every day. Something should be shifting inside of you. Now, I know that the writer Hebrews, we don't know who it is exactly. Some people think Paul, some people think Apollos. We don't know. But the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the, love lo lo whom the Lord loves, he chastens. For whom the Lord loves. He chastens. He corrects. He changes. He brings things to bear upon you so that 
it's appropriate to recognize that not every trial or every trouble you face is a discipline from God. But some are. Some of it is God letting things happen in your life in order to wake you up, to make you realize you've been living for yourself instead of for Him. You've been making yourself the priority instead of God. You have said, God, you're number one with your words. But your attitude, your deeds, reflect something different. And God will sometimes allow stuff to come our way. There aren't all discipline, but some are. So when your car breaks down, don't necessarily think it's God breaking your car down. Sometimes it's just a matter of the fact that you didn't take care of your car. I know that's revolutionary for some of you, but go ahead and think about it. So that when you run out of gas, don't say it's the devil. Do you know what it is? When you're facing trouble, it's very possible it's an enemy attack. It is. But the fact that you're facing problems might mean that you're living in a fallen world and that you're not making wise decisions. It might be, and forgive me, I know this isn't popular today, it might be your fault. You made the decision to do that. And that's the consequence. God wants to change something in us so that his presence and his blessing could rest upon us. When stuff happens in my life, I regularly will say, God, what are you trying to say to me in this? And it could be, I'm not saying anything. This was just stupidity around you. Or it could be God saying, I can use that to work my presence into you. Let's go back to Haggai, verse 15. And now carefully consider. Again, how many times does Haggai say consider? Now carefully consider from this day forward. From before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs and there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with a blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hand. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now, from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. Here God moves from moving to de from dealing with their disinterest to their disappointment to now he's actually going to deal with their dissatisfaction. They're upset with God because things aren't changing fast enough. And God is basically saying two things to them. He's saying, number one, three months' work doesn't undo 16 years of laziness. And I say it to people all the time. It's taking you a lifetime to get to where you are in life. It's not going to change overnight. It takes some time. But are you continuing to press into God? Are you continuing to believe for God to change it? But the second thing he says to them is remember. Remember. Write it down. In other words, sometimes I say to people, write it in your Bible. Make it official. Remember. 
Remember, he says, remember that when you went to draw some grain out, there wasn't enough there? It should have been more, but it was less. He says, remember that your efforts failed again and again. What you put your hand to didn't work. But remember from this day forward. He says it twice. Remember, from this day forward, I will bless you. Things are going to change. But the reason he tells them to write it down is so that they don't forget that they had already tried on their own and it didn't work. Remember, this is the work of God's hand. This is not you. Remember, I know that there are Christians who say Christians should never go back. You should never look at your past at all. I disagree. I'm not saying I think you should wallow in sorrow over your sin that has been forgiven. That's not what I'm talking about. I think it's healthy to remember from whence you've come. That Paul was able to say, not I was, but I am the chief among sinners. That's what he said. I think it's healthy for me to remember what I used to be like. What I used to do regularly. Even things that I knew to be wrong, but I wanted to do it anyways, and I did it. And yet God came out of his love and grace and rescued me and changed my heart. I'm not there anymore. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not there anymore. And I thank God for that. So he's telling us, remember, remember that he saved you. Remember he rescued you, but also remember you tried on your own a lot and it didn't work real well. It's got to be God or it won't work. That's what Haggai is telling them. Verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you says the Lord of hosts. In your notes, right next to Zerubbabel, in your margin, you might want to put the name Jeconiah. Jeconiah. Jeconiah was Zerubbabel's grandfather. But the important thing about Zechaniah, the important thing about Jeconiah, rather, is that Jeconiah was the last king of Judah before they were taken into captivity. He was an evil king who failed the people again and again. And he was the end of the rope, if you will. You know where people say, I'm at the end of my rope? He was the end of the rope for God. And God says, that's it. Their sin has reached full measure. And he sent them into captivity for 70 years because of Jeconiah, Zerubbabel's grandfather. And here's Zerubbabel, who is sent by God back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to allow righteousness to reign, sacrifices to be offered. Here is Zerubbabel, the grandson of an evil king, puts his hand to the work and it fails. They quit work. Can you imagine what's going on inside of Zerubbabel's heart? Do any of you guys have a bad relative in your history? I do. 
you know, you know, relatives who I'm talking about murder and gun running and uh, booze running during the prohibition and what they then named Whiskey Hill Road because they ran so much moonshine there. You know, a checkered past. You know what I mean. That was Zerubbabel. He had a checkered past, and it seemed like God called him to do this, but everything he's doing is failing. How would you feel? I guess I'm no better than my grandfather. He failed the whole nation, and I'm failing the nation. We're not getting anything right. And God comes along, and he says, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like my very own signet ring. A signet ring isn't like our wedding rings or maybe you have your class ring on or your engagement ring. Uh, a signet ring was much larger. In fact, sometimes it wasn't even worn. It was so big. With the signet ring, they would usually take some wax or some other kind of mold that they could make and they would drip the wax on an envelope and they would then take that signet ring and they would stamp into it and it would leave its impression in the wax. And when that signet ring was held and it was stamped, that document proved that it came directly with the full force of the king behind it. The full authority and the full power of the king was vested in that ring. No one could use that ring but the king. In fact, we have an example of that back in Genesis chapter 41, 42, when the scripture tells us that Pharaoh took off his signet ring and gave it to Joseph and said, whatever you decide is if I decided it. God comes along and he says to Zerubbabel, who's feeling like a failure, who's got a checkered past in his family and everything he's trying is failing. He says, Zerubbabel, things are going to change now. I'm going to make you like my signet ring so that everything you touch comes with my power and my authority behind it. And everything you touch will be left with my impression. Zerubbabel becomes the first in the line of people, a forerunner, if you would, of those people who will bear God's likeness on their life. Isn't it interesting, by the way, I don't know if you guys realize this, Zerubbabel is in the lineage of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Zerubbabel, the guy who was the governor, who was the failure, whose grandfather sent the people of God into captivity, Zerubbabel is in the line of Christ. That's what this whole book has been about. That we would be a people of his presence. That like Zerubbabel, his likeness would be stamped upon us and seen by all. My question today as I end is this. Are you willing to be that man or that woman who says, I don't care what others say, think, or do. I'm going to fully follow Jesus with my life. I want his image to be seen in me. The question is, do we have even one signet ring of God here in Warsaw, New York, in Family Life Church? One person who says, I'm willing to stand up and to be his authority, his representative, his power in the world. I'm going to let him change me from the inside out that I might be a house for his glory. I'm giving my whole life to him. I want to remind you what Jesus said. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves 
son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Is there anything in your life that you love more than God? Is there anyone, anything that is more important to you than serving Jesus? That thing has just become your God. Maybe it's you. Maybe you have dethroned God and enthroned yourself. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed as a Lutheran Christian pastor in World War II, as the armies were going into Berlin to take back the city, he who was a prisoner in a prisoner of war camp was brought out so that they could kill him because they were more afraid of the truth he preached than all the rest of the armies. He said, we can't let this man live. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the definition of sin is the dethronement of God and the enthronement of self. Who is really in charge? Who is the priority in your life? When the early church stood before judges and rulers, those judges looked at the early disciples and said they took note that they had been with Jesus. When people look at you, do they take note that you've been with Jesus? Has his impression been left upon your life? That's the book of Haggai. It's not enough to put up a banner out on our wall to say people of his presence. If we're not a people of his presence, then we're just fooling ourselves. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, if you don't live all out for him. It's an all or nothing Next Sunday, as you saw the video announcement, I'm going to be starting a new series that they have named Relationship 101. Um, I don't know what it's going to even be like. I don't know if it will even work. Part of me doesn't care. What I do care about is that the Word of God be read and that it take root in our hearts and life and that as best as possible, we live out the Word of God. You have more Word in you already than most other people in the world. Are you living out what you already know? That's Haggai. Would you stand with me? Is his image clearly seen in your life? Are you willing to be that signet ring of God in Warsaw, in Wyoming County, or wherever it is that you live? Are you willing for that? Are you willing to stand up like Moses did when he came down off the mountain and he saw the situation of sin in the world? He said, let those who are on the Lord's side come unto me. And the scripture says the Levites came. The Levites came. And from that point on, they were vested with the responsibility of taking care of and serving in the house of God. Isn't that what you want? To be his through and through. Not his in name, so that you can feel good, because we live, after all, don't we live in a Christian nation? Have you looked out there lately? I'm not even sure how a nation can be a Christian. I think people can be Christians. 
If you get enough people, then maybe the nation looks different. And wouldn't that be nice? Father, I know that every word that I have said means absolutely nothing unless it is breathed upon by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm asking today that the question I asked at the beginning, what does it look like to be a Christian, a true Christian in Warsaw, New York, in our little corner of the world? I'm asking God that you would cause that question to reverberate inside and it would not release any of us until we begin to live as your people fully and truly every day and every moment of the day. And when we blow it, Father, it's not that you come and berate us, it's that you invite us back to your heart where you can change us from the inside out. We don't hide it. We're not pretending. We're not covering it up. We're saying, God, that's not who you have called me to be. And I want to be who you called me to be. So Lord, today, let this book that we're finishing up here, even as we're thinking about the next series, let this book resound within us. And every time we open our Bibles and we look at it, to remember what we have talked about here in this house as your call upon our lives. Let each one of us bear the image of the invisible God. That we would touch those around us, leaving your impression upon them as well. That's my prayer for us as a body. In the name of Christ, amen. Thank you.